So we read this morning from the book of Esther, chapter 4, 12 to 17. So you can follow along also in your pew Bible. It is on page 491, page 491. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a real position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my mates will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of the Esther's instruction. This is the word of God. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate that. Okay, let's uh, take a look at this passage together from the book of Esther. Some of you, John Mott, not sure if you're familiar with that, lived back in the 1900s. Actually, in 1946, he received the Nobel Peace Prize for the work that he had done, starting organizations, uh, student volunteer movements largely on campuses that promoted peace around the world. He was, at the time, probably the most traveled and trusted Christian leader in the world, John Mott. That was 1946. Back in 1912, he received an invitation from the White Star Line uh, that offered him free passage on a ship called the Titanic. Uh, but he, along with his colleague, decided that rather than take that and go over an extravagance, they would take uh, a lesser known and a humbler line that was called the Lapland. And when they received information in New York City about what had happened on the Titanic as it went down, this was the quote that they said, the good Lord must have more work for us to do. And that's what we find here in the book of Esther, isn't it? I mean, here's a person who's in a position of prominence and who recognizes that there's work to be done, that this person's in this particular place for a particular reason, as we all are as well. It's an amazing story, and it's known by scholars as unique in the Bible because God's never mentioned and yet he's right there in the middle of the story. He's all throughout, from beginning to end. King Cyrus is the ruler of Persia. He's given the Jewish nation freedom to return, to construct the walls of Jerusalem. We looked at that in Haggai. We read about that in Nehemiah. Rebuild their temple, the book of Ezra. But now we're here in Esther. His son, King Cyrus' son Xerxes, has taken a queen named 
Vashti, and she seems to be sort of a saucy type of sorts because she's going to challenge some of what the, the king is doing, and we'll read about that right at the beginning of Esther in chapter 1 on the seventh day. When King Xerxes went in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So, uh, you know, good bachelor stuff going on here too. Uh, she's very attractive and he wants to show her off. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious and burned with anger. So Xerxes is done with Vashti. He starts the search as a result for a new queen because he consults people and they say, get rid of this gal. Find somebody else who can be queen. And that's where Esther enters. She was an orphan. She was a foreigner. And she was a woman. And this happens so often in the scriptures, doesn't it? People who seem unlikely, God's going to use in remarkable ways. And that's what happens here as well. She's going to wield and yield remarkable influence because of her faithfulness and because of her bravery. So in chapter 2, verse 17, we read, The king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now Esther has a cousin named Mordecai, and uh, Mordecai had taken her into his home when her parents died, and they have a pretty tight relationship. It's like a, a mentor of sorts, very much like a father figure, somebody who's coming alongside her and speaking into her life along the way. And he's, um, he's also finds favor with Xerxes, um, not just uh, the, this gal, but also her father figure of sorts. Esther chapter 2, verse 21 says, During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But what a story. I mean, this has got intrigue, secrecy, beauty. Uh, it's going to have irony. It's a, it really is an incredible narrative. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to King Xerxes. Um, and the king, giving credit to, to Mordecai, and when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. And that's important because later in the story, we're going to find that this story here, this incident is revisited to honor Mordecai. We're introduced as well to an enemy of the Jews here, uh, Haman. Uh, he's exalted, this guy Haman, by the king as well. And he expects everybody to bow down to him, but Mordecai uh, won't do it. And so Haman hates Mordecai and his people, the Jews. Now the other piece of information here is that the king doesn't realize uh, that Queen Esther is Jewish. She hasn't divulged her ethnicity at this point either. So you can see how things are getting set up. Haman hates Mordecai, but this incident will later be called upon to honor Mordecai at Haman's expense, and eventually Haman himself is eliminated in the way he wanted to eliminate Mordecai. Now here's the point of the story. This story where God is not mentioned. 
He's right there in the middle of it. Every single part of this cries out that God is in the middle of this story. Now, two things to consider. Let's suggest then that God is in the meta-narrative. Now, that sounds like an AP English type thing as well, too. And it sounds kind of cool, meta. Uh, sounds like maybe a transformer type thing or something like that. But it, it's a big, meta, above, big, the big story, right? God is in that. That there is a huge story that God is telling, and we can see God's hand in all things. Maybe it's hard to see in the individual pieces, but when we step back and look, like at the Grand Canyon, you say, wow, that is amazing. That's kind of a picture of the big narrative, the meta-narrative that God is telling that we see as we read through the book of Esther. You know, one thing that I think is helpful, and if they say repetition is the mother of all learning, if you've been here long enough, you might say, wow, you throw this up there a lot. Yeah. So hopefully you'll, you'll, you'll get the kind of sense of things. This is kind of the meta-narrative of the Bible, too. Creation, fall, redemption. I mean, the Bible, the big story is that God, there is a God who created everything, and he created it good. He created it beautiful and majestic, good, good, we're told. Unfortunately, sin enters the world, and everything's broken. Everything is broken, Mind, body, soul, creation, nothing is left untouched by the ravages of sin. Death enters the world. Now, regardless of whether you take the biblical big story, this grid actually explains a lot of the other ways that people try to put together and make sense of the world. Everybody has some sense of a creation there, even if it's evolution, Big Bang, you have, it's, how did we get here? I mean, we all want to know. How did, how did, how did it happen? Why, why, why do we have the existence at all? I mean, I realize not a lot of people sit there and think about this all the time. But on some level, you're, you're asking, how did we get here? And you also recognize that something's broken. There's a problem. This isn't perfect. There's a mess. And once you recognize that, the next question is, well, how do we clean it up? What hope is there for any sort of a fix to the problems that there are? And that's what we're all grasping for. The meta-narrative of the Bible is that God created everything. We're broken. We can't fix it on our own. God, who created then, enters into space and time and offers, as it were, the fix to a restored relationship with him. And that's what's being anticipated in the Old Testament. This one we call the Redeemer who purchased back what was lost is being anticipated over and over again. And we know when we turn the pages to the New Testament, he shows up in the person of Jesus. And he's the one who's bringing redemption and offering new life and giving us hope even in the midst of our absolute brokenness. That's what's being pictured when we do baptism later as well. That's the meta-narrative so we can recognize now that God's given us hope. And when we look into the meta-narrative of this big, big story, we open up the book of Esther, we see it there as well. God's hand in all things, this broad, sweeping stroke of history that God orchestrates and over which he superintends. 
You know, 70 years before King, I mean, King Cyrus, when uh, Babylon had, had taken over under Nebuchadnezzar, and these people are carted off there to Babylon. Now it's taken over by a new kingdom. And that kingdom is going to have somebody who says, oh, look, we'll send these people back to Jerusalem. And then they rebuild that temple, which is a picture of the temple God's going to build in the future, which is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. That God's... This is the big story all coming together. It's no mistake and no accident. This is God's doing. And we need to step back sometimes and look at that bigger picture because we get, well, we can lose hope when you get stuck into the little things and think this is all there is. No, there's not. Esther, this young, attractive Jewish woman, gains access to the inner court as a queen. She's in a position to save her people from annihilation because if you read earlier, you know that's what's happening. Haman says, give me license to kill all the Jews. And the king doesn't realize that his queen is one of them. So he says, go ahead, do what you want. You're in a position of honor. And now that threat is real. He doesn't even realize he's signed a death sentence for the queen and her people. This one from whom the Messiah would come, this line of people, this Redeemer, the embodiment of restoration with God for all people at all times. That's happening right here when we just open up Esther chapter 4. And I think sometimes it's helpful to step back and consider this perspective for a number of reasons, this bigger perspective. I mean, number one, God's magnified. We see God's role in all things. He always was, always will be. I mean, we're just bound by space and time. We have a birth date and a date when we're no longer here. We have precious few years in between, it seems, although sometimes it feels like we're going to live forever. We know we won't, but God will. And he's orchestrating all of this. He's orchestrating history, the rise and fall of kingdoms, the success or failure of ideologies and ambitions and plans. He holds the king's heart in his hands. That's a big God. That's a big story. It also means that the weight of the world doesn't need to be on our shoulders. This doesn't dismiss responsibility, but it does alleviate the sense that one right or one wrong action on your part overrides God's abilities to bring about something good. I mean... Consider Joseph, you're familiar with that. What you intended for evil, these brothers who hate this younger brother, what you intended for evil, God used for good. I mean, you look back and say, God, there's, I can't be part of this meta-narrative because I'm a big F. I'm a big failure. Nah, you're bigger than God. Whoa, you think way too much of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> there's no mistake God can't override The weight of the world not be, need not be on your shoulders individually or even when it comes to others as well. I mean, he says, Mordecai does to Esther in our text, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, if you don't do it, guess what? Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. God's going to do this. Do you want to be a part of it? <laughs> I mean, that's what he's saying. It's like, you've been positioned well to do something. 
And it's your responsibility to do it. But guess what? If you don't, God's going to take care of it some other way too. You're, you can't foil these plans. And that means that, let's face it, there's always reason for hope. We can believe with great certainty that somehow God is at work despite how things might appear. Kids, job choice, messy relationships. I mean, we all have expectations about how things are going to go. And when it seems like they're not, it feels like the world can be crumbling around you. Is there still reason for hope? I, I just think it's helpful. I believe it's helpful to take back a look and see this huge story and say, well, yeah, of course. It's much bigger than what I can see. It's never true that all is lost. Last week we said the story isn't over yet. Remember that from Haggai? The story isn't over yet. On the one hand, there's still things to do. That's what he's saying. But on the other hand, God's with you. He's, he's bigger than your individual circumstances. He's, he's knit, weaving together something that's bigger than you can see. And that's an anchor for the soul. You have to attach yourself to that, especially when the storms are raging all around. You think Jesus is panicking when there are storms all around? What's he doing in the boat? He's taking a nap. <laughs> He's got this. He's got this. You know, Cindy was teaching the ESL class right over here. Really, He's got the whole world in his hands, right? It was beautiful. All, all singing that song. And, and that's, that seems like a nice kid story, but is it, it's true, right? God's got this. I mean, he, even when all the storms are raging, he's the one who spoke everything into existence with just a word. He measures the expanses of the universe. It's almost just like a hand's breadth. You think he doesn't have this? Deliverance will arise for somewhere else, and we need to remember to see God's hand in all things. But... That's a meta-narrative, and we're kind of tinkering with and getting to the other piece, which is that there's an individual narrative too, right? There's a personal story. God's got this big story he's telling, this meta-narrative, and we can see his hand in all things, but then there's kind of like, what about me? There's an individual story as well. His purposes are cosmic, but they're also very personal. Let's take marriage, for example. Way back there, in that creation, fall, redemption, God creates Adam, brings all these animals in front of him, and he says, you know, there's nothing that seems to fit quite with me. They all sound, they're all pretty cool. Let's give them some names. He said, well, what about me? And God says, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to create from your rib somebody who can be with you, your ezer, your, your helper, the one who completes you, right? You complete me. That's the idea. There's a complementary role that God has put as he creates woman out of man, ish in the Hebrew, and then isha. From man comes woman, and you're completed. That there's, there's, there's a wholeness that comes in that, and it's, it's beautiful, it's great. And then we know when the fall comes, of course, everything kind of gets messed up again. Marriage as well. Um, and it's a it's hard, but part of what we get to do in marriage, too, is 
is uh, I think of this often as sow seeds of Eden. You know, you get the chance to kind of restore what was broken in uniquely sort, sort of way, and that's great. But that's the merit, meta-narrative. There's like marriage, and God has given it to us, and it's a good thing. And that sounds good, but what about me, right? That's what you're thinking if you're not married. What about me? Is there somebody for me? Like, is there someone out there for me? It's great to know this, but what about me? You know, that's what you're asking is not, I think marriage is great, but is there a spouse out there for me? That's the individual narrative as well. And if we believe that God sold that big story, then we think he also has something for us individually. Now here, Haman aims to have the Jews killed, and Mordecai realizes Esther is uniquely positioned to appeal to the king to stop it. So God's going to, you know, the big story is he's going to bring, deliver the Jews. And Mordecai's going to say, how about you be involved in it? That's the big story. What about you? Are you in this place for this moment, right now, to do something about it? That's the individual story. Has God put you there uniquely? For this purpose. And that's exactly what he says in Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. But you and your family's father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Here's the interplay between the big and the personal story. Where you are is no mistake. The circumstances of your life figure into the bigger story. And that's not a huge leap to make. You know, this, you're not Esther. We're not kings and queens in palaces living thousands of years ago. As far as I know. But we are placed in a specific place for God's purposes. I can't help but think of Acts 17, which we'll refer to from time to time as well. When Paul comes to, goes to Athens and he says, you know, the God of all creation has put you exactly where you are. Exactly where you are. In Mason, Ohio, in a rented space at Village Seventh-day Adventist Church. In 2019, on September 29, you're here for a reason. It's no mistake. All the people living around here, God has orchestrated and put them in that meta-narrative right there. But why? So that they can reach out and find God. That's why he's not far from each of us. That's the personal narrative. It's not just that there's a big thing going on. It's that, well, you have to ask now, what's my ro role in that? What's my involvement with that? It's no mistake that you're here, that you are where you are, that you're in the family that you're in, that you're, you're anything. Even all the things that look back and say mistakes and uh, feel like mistakes or things that have gone wrong. Why? So that you can reach out and find out he's not far from you because creation, fall, yes, but redemption. There's a, there's a way to know purpose and freedom and the assurance that comes from your particular position. This is the turning point, the hinge of the whole story. Esther's life has been working toward this defining moment where she's playing one part in a much larger storyline. 
And we're invited into this narrative. You know, we're reading this with her and we're compelled to ask of ourselves the same question that Mordecai puts before her. Because that's a question that transcends cultural settings and predicaments. Which is essentially this. How are you going to use your position of influence for good? Like I said, we're not kings and queens of physical kingdoms. But do we have a position of influence? Absolutely. Each one of us does. Pastors, doctors, lawyers, financial advisors, counselors, managers, technicians, teachers, salesmen, moms, dads, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters. You, you influence somebody. And like I often say, if you're younger and you feel like you don't influence anybody, then get a pet. That's why you have them, right? It's like, yeah, I can control something. But actually, you have spheres of influence. And this kind of question isn't just out there. It's like, what, what am I doing? When are the, what are the opportunities I have within my sphere of influence to affect good? It's really not a matter of influence it, it, when it comes down to it. Are you open and willing? Are you open to asking that question all the time? Are you willing to do what the answer to that question might be without justifying, shading, blaming, excusing, or even sometimes thinking about personal benefit that might come from you? I mean, this is pretty pretty interesting scenario. Queen Vashti has already proven that if you go against the king's wishes, you got problems, right? And she, there's, a, there's an edict, you can only come in so often and only when he calls. So if she goes before the king to plead for her people, there's a good chance she might die. That's some skin in the game, right? But she does it. She has to ask and her, Mordecai challenges her, you've got a position here of influence. Are you going to do the right thing, even if it comes at personal risk? Are you seeking God's purposes for how you are to respond moment by moment in the place where he's placed you? I remember hearing a pastor talk uh, about somebody uh, in the business place who was a manager and there had been a bad this business decision made. And um, the manager was in a position where he could blame it on one of the people he was supervising. And it would have been very easy for him to do. Uh, and instead, he took responsibility for it. And this was in a, a meeting, a, a meeting of sorts. And he said, that was my decision. And it came at great cost to him too as a result of that. And afterwards, this other person who was underneath him said, why did you do that? You know, you had an opportunity to, to pin it on me. And this guy was a follower of Christ who took his faith seriously. And he said, you know what? I'm trying to work with integrity in, in the workplace. And uh, I knew I had to take that hit because it was the right thing to do. Now, that individual probably influenced more influenced more that one person's perspective on what it means to be a follower of Christ than if he had gone to 20 different church services and from up front heard somebody saying, actors' integrity. 
Be a person of integrity because there's a whole bunch of examples of people who were in the church pews not doing that very thing the next week. And yet he was willing to sacrifice. This guy was. And it gave him a pathway to be able to say, this is why I did it. Because what matters more to me is the integrity that I have in my opportunity to influence others than the bottom line, the financial line. And I, listen, we, we, I think all theoretically, think that we'd make the same choice. But when you put a price tag on it that's actual dollar signs, we often like to shade the truth just a little bit. You think you don't have influence? People aren't calculating, measuring kids, whoever the case may be. It doesn't make it easy, for sure. But my goodness, your life isn't on the line, but somebody else's eternal salvation might be, potentially. And of course, God's in charge of that. We know he orchestrates it. But you have a responsibility. This is exactly what Mordecai is saying. God's got this. How about your involvement in the entire process? And that comes to, to me, personally, thinking through all of these things. It's not a burden, right? I mean, Esther wanted to do the right thing because she saw that it delighted this person, Mordecai. And it was what God wanted of her. That's the mentality that we're driving for. What's my individual role in this? You know John Mott, that guy who took the uh, other ship along the way? He said this, It is possible for the most obscure person in church with a, right, a heart right toward God to exercise as much power for the evangelization of the world, that is, for making a difference for the sake of Christ in the world, as it is for those who stand in the most prominent positions. So it's not a matter of whether you have influence by the, the world standards. It's whether you're using what God has put you in right now with that mentality. Okay, God, here you go. I am going to use my influence, as small as it may seem, for your glory, and that can have remarkable, significant changes. I, I remember once in, in Mexico a handful of years ago going, uh, I was on a, on a mission trip to uh, a corner building in downtown of a larger city in Mexico where there was a lot of uh, drug activity and, you know, gunshots, all that kind of stuff as well in, in the neighborhood. And there was a pastor of that this little, little church. And he invited us all in. You know, we all gathered around. And uh, Jose, his name was Pastor Jose. And the first thing he said was, Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> I just remember that. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. This dirty, dusty, dangerous place. He said, This is where God is at work. And I'm going to use my position of influence here and see this place as the kingdom of heaven. And if he can say that about a drug-infested corner in a place with, where cartels grow like, you know, flowers in the spring, well, what about where you are? Is there any corner that God's, that God's kingdom can't be brought? Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. Think about that when you go to your workplace, when you go home. <laughs> Welcome to the king. Because God, God's meta-narrative says Christ breaks into any place and the kingdom of heaven is ushered in in beautiful ways for people who are simply willing to do this. Surrender ourselves. God calls us to surrender ourselves wherever we are and leave the results to him. That's it. Okay, God, 
I'm a mess. I don't see all this stuff. I want to enter into that big story and say, how are you breaking in now in this individual story as well? And let's just see what you do. And that influence can't always be measured by what you see. Because this kingdom of heaven isn't just a, a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom as well. And there's things happening that you can't see. That's part of what it means to have faith, to trust that God's at work in the midst of this. So when I come to a story like Esther, I look at it and I think, wow, you know, this gives me strength for, for going through the, the kingdom of heaven is breaking into this place where God's name is not even mentioned. And he's, he's the, the main character behind the scenes making all this happen. Father, I pray for my own heart, for all of us that, boy, as we start to dig into your word, it, we wouldn't just see the big story, as important as that is, but the individual one as well. And I'm asking for myself and everybody here that we would be um, thoughtful and reflective about how we're going to use our position of influence for good. Are we willing to surrender ourselves wherever we are? And if there are barriers to that, Father, would you crash through those? Would you just demolish them so that we can come before you and say, okay, Lord, look, here I am. Do whatever you want. So do your work in us, Father. And this week as we go throughout our, our, our normal activities, would you be gracious to us, but also stir us. Just like we said last week, let's get stirred, not stuck. So that we'll be able to say, who knows, maybe we've come to this position right now for such a time as this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.